Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to EM Guidewire here at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. My name is Travis Barlock. I am a PGY2. And I'm Claire Milam. I'm a PGY3. Um, today, we're going to talk to you guys about DKA. I feel like this is a patient that we see not infrequently, and I think you learn about it a lot as a medical student, and you're so excited about knowing about potassium and insulin. And then you get the patient and they're pretty sick and you don't really know what to do. Oh yeah, for sure. I think it's like one of the most classic kind of bread and butter emergency medicine cases that we come across. And I think it's often misunderstood and something that we definitely need to feel very comfortable with. For sure. So the way that we're going to do this is we're going to talk about a patient, just kind of present the patient and then go through and talk about how we approach them and, and why we do the things that we do and how the treatments work. So Sounds good. Let's go. Okay. So let's say you're working in your major treatment area, which is where our high acuity patients are, and somebody comes in and they're like, hey, um, this guy doesn't look very good. Can you come and see him? And you walk in and it's a 40-year-old male. They say, hey, he's got a history of diabetes, type 1, and he is coming in because he's really nauseated and he keeps vomiting. And so you're like, cool, great. What's the next thing that you look for? You know, I, I want to know <laughs> what are their vital signs and just, you know, get a good eyeball test on this guy. I mean, is he breathing? <laughs> is he like, what's, what's happening? Right, because these patients can present so differently. They can be like, totally fine sitting up in the bed just like maybe vomiting a little or they can be unconscious mm -hmm. so I like that okay so this patient comes in they're afebrile your nurses are awesome they have all their vitals all ready for you heart rate 137 blood pressure 110 over 72 respiratory rate 24 and spo2 97% on room air right off the bat elevated shock index has definitely got me you know a little more worried about this person right off the bat breathing a little fast not, nothing too crazy but otherwise yeah the, the hemodynamic component of his vital signs are what are most striking to me. Yeah. I will say that anytime there's an abnormal, like not 18 respiratory rate documented, mm -hmm. makes me think it's more than what it's That's, documented. That is true. I feel like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's 18 across the board. And if it's not 18, then it's maybe much, much, much higher. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that anytime it's abnormal, I'm like, mm -mm, mm, something. let me go assess their, I mean, we always assess breathing, but definitely raises my eye. And then, yeah. So your little eyeball test is, he doesn't look very good. He could, I mean, on a sick, not sick scale, this this guy looks kind of sick. All right. So what do you need to do for this patient right away? Well, so, I mean, I, I think like every patient, you're going to have to have kind of the same systematic approach. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we always harp on it, but I mean, we harp on it for a reason. And so always going to go through the ABCs and approach this patient's mentation and try to see how are they mentating? Are they protecting their airway? And then I guess the next question is, if those things are all checked off, then I mean, what do we have for access and monitoring for the patient. Yeah, so this patient right now, all we know about him is that he has a history of type 1 diabetes, but those vital signs basically say he's in shock and it's undifferentiated at this point. So, you know, we think that it might be hypovolemic because of his DKA potentially, but we don't know that. And so, you know, I think that you definitely have to come in and treat every single patient like this is somebody in an undifferentiated shock. I need to assess the, the ABCs and, you know, especially with patients, if this is DKA, that are having issues with breathing, like maybe their GCS 
is fine. But if they're so acidotic that they've been to Kipnik from it, you know, maybe they're about to wear out. So those are all super important things to assess right when you get into the room. And then, you know, like you said, making sure that we have all those other, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed, making mm-hmm. sure they have access because this is a sick patient. So For sure. So our nurses are, again, amazing. And so he's already hooked up. He's got a bunch of access because he's pretty young and otherwise has, you know, not worn out all of his veins just yet. And so then the nurse looks at you and says, what labs do you want? Well, point of care glucose would be the most important thing right from the get-go. If the patient is hypoglycemic, that would be life-threatening in the immediate moment Mm -hmm. and would be important to correct right from the get-go. After that, I would say an electrolyte panel. You should definitely get a VBG. Figuring out what their pH is will be critical, and an ABG and a VBG won't have a big difference there between those two. Yeah. So I, I always think it's kind of sometimes difficult to get a point of care glucose because they're like, oh, well, we're just getting access. Some of these people are really difficult to get access on. And the other thing that's nice about point of care glucose is, is that it doesn't have to be a nurse who can get it. Most institutions, you can have a lot of different people, text assistants get it, and it really can, you know, move your differential needle point. So even if you're about to get access, waiting for a glucose to come back and finding out you're wrong can be so bad. The only thing that the textbook always says is like, then get a urine dip. Mm-hmm. And these people like never... Right. They can't pee. I mean, you know, most of these people are hypovolemic and are not going to be able to get you a, a good sample right away. Right. And and that's okay. If you can get it, you definitely should. But we understand that the textbook and, and what happens in high acuity areas of the ED can just be different. So mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. I, I love that because that always happens where the nurse is like, we're done with our job. What, do you else do? what else do you want us to do? And you're like, I haven't thought of my computer yet. I don't know. <laughs> And then I guess now after, I mean, just getting the initial lab work, I mean, we still have to just resuscitate and treat the patient before us, right? So, I mean, from there, my understanding of DK is that these patients are super volume down. And so I would say, you know, even though the problem is an elevated glucose and this like catecholamine surge, right here, right now, the patients need volume. And so I would say the next move is to resuscitate these patients with IV fluids pretty aggressively right from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously the the definitive answer for treatment is insulin. Actually, 90% of people who had DKA before insulin died, which is crazy. No way. Yeah, 90%. But you can do these extra things because they've taken a long time to become hyperglycemic and and develop this acidosis. And so you can kill a patient a lot faster by giving them insulin without knowing their potassium or causing hypoglycemia. So absolutely, the first thing that we have to do is resuscitate. What's your go-to for resuscitation? So in terms of fluids, I go to LR pretty much every time. I feel like it's always the safe bet. You know, if you had to pick one or the other, I think LR, you, you won't get faulted on. And then as far as a, an initial bolus, I would say two liters is probably my go-to volume I, I'd pick. You know, you could go less, you could go more. And I, I'd pick that based on the patient before me. This patient that we've described, I would say, you know, depending on how much they weigh and how big they are and what other comorbidities they may have, I would start again, yeah, with my my go-to of two. Yeah. Yeah, this patient, if you guys remember from the beginning, had a heart rate of 137. And so I would really look to resuscitate to improve vital signs to, you know, improve their, at this point, we think shock secondary to hypovolemia from DKA. 
And so, you know, they haven't done a head-to-head study or anything like that on normal saline versus LR in the in this type of patient, but they have shown that LR in critically ill patients has been better because of the acidosis that normal saline can cause. And so these patients are probably already taking a hit to their kidneys. Mm-hmm. And so I think at this point, most ER doctors are moving to LR for resuscitative fluids. So those are going to be a little bit different than the maintenance fluids, which we'll talk about. But I think you brought up a really good point about comorbidities. Mm-hmm. I think you have to look at the patient as a whole and understand a lot of these patients have heart failure or kidney failure, things like that. And you really have to tailor your resuscitation to that. For sure. Yeah. And I think that it it is important to drill home the point that why are they here right now? I mean, they are super volume down. They do need volume, but in the same breath, they may have a propensity to become overloaded and, and to just be tipped over the edge. And so you just need to be mindful of that so that you don't push it a little too far. Yeah. And and like we talked about with the insulin, it's taken these patients a while to get to the point of hyperglycemia and acidosis. It also has taken them a while to get down however many liters. You know, a lot of, you know, sources say different things, but anywhere from like five to 10 liters down. But that's not over the two hours there in your emergency department. That's over, you know, days to weeks or whatever it may be. And so you certainly don't have to resuscitate them right away and then cause more problems for sure. So, And then the other thing that we would potentially do right away if you look at the EKG that we brilliantly got right mm-hmm. away and saw any concerning changes, then you might need to treat that. So. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, the, I guess the things that we're getting right off the bat, those labs, the, the initial monitoring and that EKG, you know, the, the reasoning behind that, that EKG, right, is if, if they have a critical potassium that is, you know, leading to cardiomyocyte dysfunction and just the classic peak T waves and widening of your QRS and then ultimately, you know, a sinusoidal pattern like that would be absolutely absolutely immediately life-threatening and need to be corrected right from the get-go. So yeah, I mean, if they have that EKG with changes that are concerning for hyper-K, then you have to treat that hyper-K right now. Yeah. I mean, you just, you give calcium right away and go from there. So. And so you do calcium gluconate and the dose for that, it's three times the one for chloride, right? And it's three grams. I know it's three times the dose of. Yeah. I mean, and if all else fails, you can give them calcium chloride. So yeah, you give calcium. And if it's a truly bad rhythm that's getting worse and worse, you can literally get into your code cart and give them calcium chloride to give them an amp, which is a gram, knowing that it's not really meant to go through peripheral veins. But, you know, at that point, it's pericode. So mm-hmm. I think that you can kind of go ahead and give it peripherally. But of course, the thing that you usually give is calcium gluconate, two to three grams. So, all right, we've stabilized our patient. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. So we've tanked him up a little bit and made sure there's nothing immediately life-threatening right then and there. And so now what? So I think that this is sometimes the hardest part of the DKA patient. You're like, yes, stabilize them and their labs are cooking and, you know, their vitals look great and all right, next patient. And I think that it's super important at this point to stop and ask the why. Mm -hmm. Like DKA is not just something that happens, right? Why is this patient in DKA? You know, at this point, hopefully you can sit down at your computer, you can start to to dig through the chart. And this is definitely the point where you have to say, okay, what other investigations do I have to do to figure out why this patient is sick in my emergency department? For sure. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think most people probably forget about DKA is that because it's so common that, you know, we just attribute it to medication, you know, noncompliance while 
in actuality, I mean, the underlying pathophysiology of DKA is, you know, a, a, a stressor and an imbalance between your, um, you know, lack of insulin and this like excess of glucagon and this catecholamine surge. And so whatever is triggering that is going to really tip the patient over into worse and worse DKA. And so I think that every one of these patients, it's an infection until proven otherwise. And then depending on their other complaints, is there something else going on? Is there a bowel obstruction? Do they have a pulmonary embolism? Do they have an MI, a stroke, you know, whatever it is. Are there any other drugs on board? And so I think once you've resuscitated the patient right from the get-go, now we're in a little bit of an investigative kind of phase where we're trying to figure out, you know, what Mm -hmm. tipped them over. And then at the very end of that, we can say, okay, maybe it was most likely due to the fact that they didn't take their insulin or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I kind of like to think of it as AFib when you're rotating in the ICU and every single patient goes into AFib and they're like, why are they in AFib? You're like, it could be Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of DKA for a type 1 diabetic or an insulin-dependent diabetic. It could be their heart. It could be a GI bleed. You know, who knows? But I think it's super important at this point to keep your differential broad. And infection, like you said, has to be on the top. Because again, this is a patient who comes in sick in shock. And while we think it's hypovolemic, it could absolutely still be distributive. And we don't have any labs back. So, you know, what happens when this patient comes back with a lactate of 12? You know, mm-hmm. don't want to be surprised. Yeah, so. exactly. Always have to consider some bug juice just in case. Right. And then at this point, do I need to add on any labs? Did I already get the troponin because I was already thinking about that? Do I need to add on yeah, a no, a thyroid, thyroid panel? panel? Yeah, I mean, blood whatever. Cultures or, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and that, that's all I think has to be catered to, you know, again, the patient's complaints, their comorbidities, and, and how they're looking right then and there in the ED. Yeah. So what happens with our guy? Well, lucky us. The labs are back. I'm just going to list off a couple of them. So I'm going to list off our electrolytes. Sodium, 128. Potassium, 3.5. Love to see that. Chloride, 101. CO2 is 7. BUN, 26. Creatinine, 1.6. Glucose, 580. pH, 7.02. Man, this guy, somehow, we got some urine from him. And it's got plus, 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 plus. Lots of so, ketones, it sounds like. I know. So I'm going to calculate that anion gap for us, and it's mm-hmm. 34. Okay. So gap of 34, bicarb of 7, pH of 7, and profound ketonuria. He's got DKA. He has DKA. We were right. For sure. He for sure does. Don't know what cost it yet, but he's got it. No doubt about it. And then, I mean, so thinking of those labs, I think just some things I would comment on. The the sodium right from the get-go. So, you know, 128, so we know that's, that's low. And then, I mean, I think we all remember being taught that there's this sort of a pseudo-hyponatremia, a dilutional hyponatremia because of the excess glucose, mm-hmm. right? And so it's, there's a, there's the measured sodium and then there's the corrected sodium, right? Mm-hmm. And so I guess, what do you do? Do you do the 1.6 for every hundred or do you do the two for every hundred? Cause I've, I've heard that there's uh, two different uh, approaches to this and MD calc actually gives you a range, which is between those. Yeah. I do MD calc though. <laughs> and you just get and the range. And then I kind of, well, yeah, I yeah. pick the range because I feel like, at, uh, you know, the, the point which we'll get to that is important 
important for the, knowing that actual sodium is not the anion gap because you use the sodium as listed, mm-hmm. but when you're when you're looking at your maintenance fluids later. And so in general, I'm like, okay, it's about here. And that kind of helps direct that part of it. Yeah. And I think that's also a good point is that the gap is based on the measured sodium. And that makes sense because you know your body is going to maintain electrical neutrality. It's not, mm-hmm. you're not going to be charged. And so obviously your, your anion gap is going to be based on, you know, what was actually measured in the blood. The potassium that you get for this guy, 3.5. So we got to know that the guy's, you know, total body potassium is much lower than that. That's already on the cusp of being too low right from the get-go, but, you know, it's not not crazy low, but, uh, you know, I'm anticipating that this guy's going to now need potassium supplementation in his treatment plan. With the bicarb of seven, I mean, that's, that is a critical bicarb for sure. And I mean, I think the easy way to think about that is if you've got single digit bicarb, that's severe. Yeah, and so, sure. I mean, we can just now kind of almost risk stratify this patient in our mind as, you know, how it was this mild, moderate, severe DKA. I mean, just with that bicarb, now we can kind of reflexively say, okay, this is severe DKA. Yeah. And I think the other just things to know, because, you know, your eyes are obviously drawn to like, oh, the DKA things are, are there. And, and I looked at it and it's super important to look at the other things. And so like, for example, I I said the creatinine's 1.6. That's probably high for this guy. Maybe not, but it's definitely important to take a look because a lot of these people do develop an AKI, again, probably from their hypovolemia, you know, compounded by a lot of these people have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, you know, the osmotic diuresis and all these extra things that cause an AKI, which I think you need to absolutely take into account, you know, one, when you're resuscitating and two, monitoring it, making sure it's not getting worse. Mm-hmm. So some some labs that I didn't really give, but but that a lot of people will tend to get are the other electrolytes, you know, magnesium, phosphorus. The way that you lose electrolytes in DKA is is partially that osmotic diuresis. You also get exocrine pancreatic dysfunction. And then, of course, with vomiting and diarrhea, so just plain old volume loss. Mm-hmm. And so you usually have low electrolytes, including mag and phos. But, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about whether or not you really need to get those values because, you know, what, what are we going to do about them? Mm-hmm. So before we get into that... I Mm-hmm. We should do a quick recap. Okay. All right. So we have a patient in our high acuity area that on a scale of stick to non-sick is sick. They're mm-hmm. tachycardic, borderline blood pressure. They look dry, pretty tachypnic. You know, EKG shows sinus tach, but fortunately no EKG changes that could be secondary to potassium. He's gotten two liters of LR. Mm-hmm. That's kind of improved his heart rate. And we have labs that are consistent with DKA pH 7.02. And then that next kind of question is what's the potassium, Mm -hmm. which we already said it's 3.5. So what do we want to do? Well, so now that we've gotten our initial fluid resuscitation administered, now the move is to you know, start to correct the underlying condition. And since, you know, there's nothing else that's striking us as far as infection or, or, you know, an MI or a bowel obstruction or something like that now, then I think the move is to provide insulin. Mm-hmm. So... And now that we know our potassium is... And now that we have that, within yeah. normal, yeah, yeah. So now I would start this patient on an insulin drip. And my go-to rate off of the top of my head is just the 0.1, so 0.1 units per kilo per hour. I've seen other ones. I've seen like 0.14 as an option, but just if I had to, you know, go off of something right off the top of my head and give an order, you know, in the room, it'd be 0.1 units per kilo per hour. That's pretty easy math, right? Mm-hmm. 100 yeah. kilo per cent. Right. 10. 10 right? Yeah. yeah. So nice. Well, I'm glad I did that math right. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. And so something that I just want to really quickly say, because as a med student and 
as um, like an inter, I mean, like even now, insulin confuses me. Mm-hmm. Like when do we give it IV? When do we do it subcutaneously? There's like a million different kinds. And so just to be clear, this is IV regular insulin. You know, going back, I was kind of like, I wonder why we use regular and, and, you know, not a fast acting or a long acting. I think that's just because that was the first insulin that we ever had. And we just haven't really tried anything else because regular insulin works. But just so you know, it's IV regular insulin. Its half-life is like three to 10 minutes. So it works quickly and it's gone pretty quickly as well. And then do you bolus patients? You know, I typically don't. Mm-hmm. I typically just give them the insulin drip and then I just recheck them mm-hmm. after an hour and see if the glucose has dropped by at least 10%. And if it has not, then I do a bolus. But if it, if it has, then I'm on track and I, I don't make too many more changes. Yeah, it looks like kind of in the literature, a lot of people are just going away from a bolus altogether. Question if it is even helpful, question if it's harmful. I know in peds, which if we didn't already say this, I know we didn't. None of this applies to the pediatric patient. This is all adults. DK in a pediatric patient is treated differently and, and should be, you know, a completely different talk, but they definitely don't bolus. And that's regarding more of, you know, shifts causing cerebral edema and things like that. And so I think that even in the adult population, though, a lot of people are, are moving away from giving any type of bolus, at least initially, and then, you know, doing the recheck after about an hour and seeing where the patient is. And sort of just to reassure you, most patients do really well with IV fluid resuscitation and low dose insulin, which is that, you know, 0.1 to 0.14. And so if they're not, which is like one to 2% of patients, it's usually because they have some underlying infection. And again, kind of what we talked about earlier is you need to really treat the underlying issue. Mm-hmm. And then you have to know the potassium, mm-hmm. which we know. All right. I think we all know insulin, biggest regulator of body potassium, you know, major driver of it intracellularly. And so if we did give that insulin without knowing the potassium and it was critically low right from the get-go, you know, we could have you know, potentially killed the patient by giving them a critically low potassium. Causing so, dysrhythmia. And yeah. yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. And there's not, I think, a perfect number. I've seen, you know, different numbers quoted. Most people say three. 3.3, think like the test answer is 3.3, mm-hmm. but you know, some institutions would say 3.5. You know, I think the important thing is that if it's lower than 3.3 or 3.5, you don't give the insulin, you completely replete it and then recheck while you're doing sort of the other things we were talking about, resuscitating them and, and just kind of supporting them until it's safe to give them insulin. For sure. And then I kind of think of it in my mind as the the values for the potassium as 5.3 and 3.3. Mm-hmm. And so if their K is over 5.3, then you don't need to give them any potassium back. If it's between there, then you give them a little bit. And then if it's less than 3.3, then you need to give them more. And yeah. So I think those numbers are a little bit easier to keep in your mind, 3.3 and 5.3. And then kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I was talking about getting other electrolytes, because you lose electrolytes in the course of this illness and you tend to lose magnesium and phosphorus, but really you don't need to replete those. Mm. They kind of... There's like mixed data on those, I I believe. Yeah, Um, I think magnesium is pretty safe to give. Some people just give it, Mm -hmm. but phosphorus doesn't really need it and it actually could be harmful is kind of what I've seen. Yeah. I think some people would say that magnesium kind of helps facilitate like potassium uptake. Mm -hmm. Again, but I don't know if that's played out in the literature well for DKA, but like you said, I think it's generally a a safe medication to provide. And so uh, I don't know if they are super hypokalemic, then I'd probably like, you know, or on the side of, you know, maybe we'd give it, but otherwise I don't feel particularly strongly about, you know, giving mag right up from the get-go for like a standard DKA 
patient. Sure. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is low, low magnesium in a super sick patient, we already talked about, mm-hmm. it can cause low potassium and, and make it difficult to, to increase your potassium, but it also can cause, you know, worsening vomiting and altered mental status. And as, as we know, on a lot of our heart patients, we always check their magnesium to make sure that it's at a 2.0. And if mm-hmm. it's not, we can give it because we really don't want to cause any more dysrhythmias. And so if you have a patient with a lot of comorbidities, if they're vomiting, if they're altered and they have low mag, like we said, pretty give safe to mag. give. Yeah. yeah. Give two grams and hopefully it'll be helpful. Mm-hmm. Foss, I mean, I don't routinely check it is what I'll say. And then in terms of low sodium, which we've kind of already talked about, you really don't treat that specifically. It, it's one of those things like the acidosis that will improve with proper resuscitation and proper treatment of the underlying issue. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's worth pointing out that the sodium that you know is measured, like that is the sodium concentration. And so on, on some level, I mean, like the pseudo hyponatremia is, I don't know if that's a misnomer or not, but I mean, it, it that is the sodium concentration in the blood. It's just that it, it will correct essentially immediately once you have treated their DKA. So if you, you know, give them fluids, if you treat their hyperglycemia, then, then their sodium yeah. will normalize, you know, right away. Mm-hmm. And so they're not like truly hyponatremic preliminarily, although they could. And so then I guess that's where that correction, you know, is helpful in that, oh man, they actually are low sodium, you know, right from the get-go. And now they're have a, now they have a dilutional hyponatremia from this like glucose excess. So, so yeah. And then I, th- I think it just kind of helps with picking your fluids after that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'll use your institutional guidelines for that, whether it's, you know, half NS or regular normal saline mm-hmm. for, you know, your maintenance fluids. But yeah, that, I think that's probably all the pearls that I know about the sodium value in, yeah. in DK. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, basically your maintenance fluids after you've properly resuscitated, because again, you do eventually want to get these people back to uvolemia, is that your goal is to just be unatremic. And whether that's NS or half NS to kind of make sure that you're not having huge shifts in sodium concentration, which as we know, can cause, you know, devastating outcomes. You're really not going to go too wrong with that. So Mm -hmm. it's going to correct pretty well. All right. So what about bicarb? So the way I think about it is if they have a critical bicarb or a critical acidosis, then I would give them bicarb. So if they're, if they've got a single digit bicarb or if their pH is less than 6.9, then it would certainly be beneficial. I mean, also if the patient is in such a profound shock that they they were mm-hmm. requiring you know, vasopressors, then I think then it'd be pretty obvious that you would want to do it just to help facilitate the utility of those. But just from a lab value perspective, again, yeah, critical bicarb or critical acidosis, then I would provide bicarb. Other- otherwise not. Yeah, because basically the the theoretical advantage of bicarb is that it helps your cardiac function and it can decrease your work of breathing. And so in these patients who are shocky, they have they're super acidotic to the point where their, you know, myocytes aren't working as they're supposed to. And let's say they're super tachypnic because they're, you know, Kussmaul breathing because they're trying to breathe off all that excess CO2. It theoretically is going to help them. And so in that patient with, you know, that you can consider it in with a really terrible pH, let's say somebody has cardiac issues, you can absolutely consider a drip. Though I'll say for the patient that doesn't kind of meet those criteria, the possible disadvantages of bicarb is that it actually can cause hypokalemia, which we've already talked about, we're really trying to avoid. It can actually give you a paradoxical CNS acidosis, so it can actually worsen your brain, which is probably not what you want to do in this situation, and that can basically change the oxygen curve, and it can increase lactate levels, and it can do a lot of things that you don't want, and so unless the patient is super sick, you know, pericode, you know, we give bicarbon codes, mm-hmm. it's, it's really not been proven to really change outcomes, so... 
that makes sense. Yeah. All right. So, holla, we have a dispo. Oh, yeah. We have a dispo for sure. Yeah. Where do you, I mean, I don't they're know. going to the ICU. Yeah, <laughs> right. This yeah. person is on a drip. Uh, this patient's on an insulin drip. They're, they're going to the ICU for sure. It's the only place that's going to be able to titrate. Check um, their glucose every, however, you know, yeah, hour, exactly. two hours. Check their BMP every, I mean, this person's going to need a lot of attention because sure. they're they're sick. We talked about that. And so this has happened to me too, though, where I'm like, cool, I see you. They're going to leave the department. Mm-hmm. And then we have no beds, you know, COVID okay. and everything, right? Right. Boarding in the ED. And it got to the point where they were like, hey, you know, nurse came up. They're like, hey, um, their glucose is now 200. So I turned off the insulin drip. And I was like, no. <laughs> so I actually think it's kind of important to know the next kind of steps of what do I do once I've, you know, done all the right things and, and given them a disposition. Mm-hmm. So... We don't turn off the insulin drip. Basically, when glucose gets below like 250, mm-hmm. give or take, just add D5 to their maintenance fluid. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point because we're not really titrating, I mean, their care to the glucose. Mm-hmm. It's to their gap, mm-hmm. you know, so. Their acidosis, yeah. And then, you know, as an inpatient, they kind of wait until the patient can tolerate PO and um, mm-hmm. whatnot to switch them, you know, to subcutaneous. So hopefully they're out of the emergency department at that point. But I mean, I will say sometimes you can close the gap pretty quickly. So super important to know. And then just two more quick points that I, I wanted to make. You know, this is a DKA talk, but HHS is certainly always on the differential as well. And so I was wondering if you could give us some Speak tidbits. a little bit to that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Classically, you'll be taught, and I still think that this is generally true, that HHS, so that's hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, and so that is typically seen with type 2 diabetes because, again, the the fundamental pathophysiology in DKA is, again, this, like, glucagon and counter-regulatory hormone excess, and so those are going to be in type 1 diabetics because they don't have the insulin to inhibit glucagon, Mm -hmm. while in HHS, that'll be in type 2 diabetics. They have some insulin. They just have a little bit of insulin resistance, so they do have some inhibition of glucagon. And so because of that, they don't have the same presentation because they don't have the keto acid production. And so it's more of an insidious process also. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they end up getting an elevated glucose that kind of creeps up on them. And so it gets higher and higher and higher. So you'll see higher glucoses with Mm -hmm. HHS, like 600, 700, 800, while DKA, I feel like I see them usually in kind of like a 400, 500 range. And then with that extreme hyperglycemia, you get so much more of that hyperosmolar component with it. And so the hyperosmolarity leads to the changes in mentation. And so the primary presentation of a patient with HHS is going to be the altered mental status. Now, I wouldn't say you can't have it in, you know, in type 1 diabetes also and vice versa, but typically, again, in, in the type 2 diabetic so, so it's yeah. like DKA, but no ketones, right. higher glucose, mm-hmm. altered mental status. Right. And you do check serum osms for these patients. because sure. something. Yeah. I'm really glad that I had you explain that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was way better than I could have done. But I'm just going to really quickly talk about euglycemic DKA, because I think that sometimes you're like, again, the first thing that we talk about getting is a point of care glucose. And let's say that's normal. And then you're like, oh. It's mm-hmm. not DK. It's just undifferentiated shock. Shoot. 18% of presentations I've seen, not personally, but I've seen that, you know, 18% of DK is actually euglycemic. And that number is rising because more patients are taking the SGLT2 inhibitors. The gliptins. Um, yes. Which, for whatever reason, increases the risk of euglycemic DKA. Pregnancy is also these patients come in and for whatever reason, you know, there's a special population in general. They 
the physiology of a pregnant woman is just slightly different. And so they come in with euglycemic DKA. And then the other person that'll get you is the one who checks their sugar at home, takes some fast-acting insulin, and then comes in. And is still acidotic, but, you know, had taken some insulin. And so um, okay. for a second, kind that, of lowered. That makes sense. Yeah. And so I, I think that in these patients that you have a high index of suspicion, a good story, nothing else is really checking out, and they don't have the diabetes component of DKA, you have to think about euglycemic DKA. And again, that kind of broadens your differential. Is it alcoholic ketoacidosis? Is it a mm-hmm. tox thing? Like what's causing this gap acidosis? But do you guys see McDK as a thing? I see. That makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that we should maybe just do one more recap. Okay. So we talked about kind of identifying the patient, treating them like every single other patient, kind of putting them on a sick, non-sick trajectory. And then once you've kind of stabilized them, asking the why question. For sure. Uh, figuring out what is the underlying stressor, I think, is you know, critical. Because these patients will get some, like, diagnostic momentum going. And if, mm-hmm. if we don't uncover, you know, the bowel obstruction, then, then no one will, you know. Sure. It'll be too late. So these patients are critically dehydrated, mm-hmm. super intravascularly deplete. And, and, you know, tailoring that to giving them resuscitative fluid and then maybe switching to maintenance fluid once they've kind of normalized their vital signs or, you know, look better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also taking into account comorbidities and how much fluid can this specific patient truly handle at a time. And then, of course, making sure that we're not going to kill them by treating them with insulin, checking their potassium. Right. Total body potassium is mm-hmm. super low in these patients. And so, you know, the value that we're measuring is going to be probably, you know, falsely high. I think that's, you know, an important point. And also just kind of doing a quick assessment of that with an EKG right away, you know, making sure that you don't see any EKG changes that could be life-threatening that you need to act on right away. Mm-hmm. Treat that accordingly. And then obviously we already mentioned, you know, the fluid resuscitation, mm-hmm. but the fluids are the mainstay of treatment. Then once we have that potassium, then we initiate, you know, our insulin therapy. Yeah, which is IV regular insulin, 0.1 unit per kg per hour to 0.14. If you, you know, are doing mental loops and someone asks you what dose do you want right away, the 0.1 is probably a little bit easier in terms of math, mm-hmm. you know. Just, and then you know, round up a bit if you... If yeah, you round up get, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Go, he's 198 kilos. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, nice. <laughs> and then, you know, recheck these patients, you know, check their labs again. You know, we're treating to close the gap and acidosis rather than the glucose itself and you get these patients admitted to the ICU. Yeah, but also making sure that if their glucose gets too low, less than 250, that we're adding some D5 into their fluids because hypoglycemia can be really bad too. Boom. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. This is Claire Milam, PGY3. And Travis Barlock, PGY2. Coming at you from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Go out and be awesome today. Be awesome. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go. Be awesome today. Seems you know. I totally lost my train of thought. Mm-hmm. That's uh-huh. a great thing about editing. I know. <laughs> you got to really just get a good... Uh, okay, let me just back up on all that. Okay. It's in the power plan. Yes. <laughs> there, yeah, there you go. End with that. Okay. <laughs>